The far-reaching impact of Russia's invasion into Ukraine. And I think we have to be prepared, unfortunately, tragically, for this to go on uh, for some time. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A grim look at climate change and how the oceans could change its course. The idea that there is a window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all that's closing, it was really a very stark statement. And the high cost of housing is causing a migration south and five works of art you should check out this month. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Today marks day 12 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one which has brought destruction to Ukrainian cities, refugees streaming across borders, and worldwide economic and political turmoil. The ongoing crisis in Ukraine is the focus of an online forum this evening from UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. The free event will feature experts to discuss the political, economic, and military impacts spurred by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what possibilities could be ahead. Joining me is the moderator of the event, Stefan Haggard, professor from UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. Stefan, welcome. I'm really happy to join you. Talk to me a bit about why you feel it's so important to hold this event. Well, this is just clearly one of the most significant events in international political history since the collapse of the Soviet Union in December of 1991. In some ways, I think it's more significant than 9-11 because it, it, it augurs for a fundamental realignment of world politics uh, in ways that I'm sure we'll be talking about. Mm. And I, I mean, what are some of the big questions you'll be asking later today? Well, I think there are three or four buckets of questions. Obviously, people are interested in Putin's motives and whether he miscalculated and, and the whole question of off-ramps for him and getting to some kind of negotiated settlement, if that's possible. But there are also some longer-run issues here that I suggested, like what's the Russian-China relationship going to look like as a result of this? What's the future of NATO? What's the future of NATO enlargement? 
And more broadly, this question of democracy in the world, uh, I personally think that one of Putin's fears of Ukraine was precisely that it was a robust democratic state, uh, not fully European democratic, but nonetheless going in that direction. And having such an entity on his border was a thorn in his side. I mean, what do you think Russia wants? What does Russia want? What did, why did they invade Ukraine? I think the events of August in Belarus were actually quite significant. I don't think that's gotten the attention it deserved. Wide-ranging protests against a long-sitting dictator uh, in which the Russians actually were involved in order to support Lukashenko's efforts to maintain power there. And we've seen uh, from the Russian response to democratic developments in Georgia in 2008, and remember the earlier protests in Ukraine, both in 2004 and 2014, which sent signals to Putin that I think were worrying about the way that Central Asia could develop in the future. Circling back to NATO, can you talk about the role of NATO in this conflict? NATO's role is extremely complicated because I think that uh, the Western European leaders and obviously President Biden as well are extraordinarily cautious about getting NATO involved in this conflict directly. Uh, I think some of your listeners may have seen this controversy about whether we would supply aircraft to Poland that would allow Poland to supply MiGs to Ukraine. And there's just a tremendous amount of caution being exercised here because if Putin were to believe that NATO were involved, we're worried, of course, that he would test uh, NATO's Article 5 commitment, uh, perhaps in the Baltics or in a country that's not a NATO member like Finland. And obviously, one reason this conflict is getting such attention is the fact that Russia is a nuclear power. How does that change the range of policy options, both in the U.S. and Europe? It just simply adds to the cautionary note that I suggested. You don't want to see this thing escalate. I think President Biden has been very clear that U.S. and Western European actions are going to be focused primarily on two fronts. First, on sanctions, which we can talk about, and then the resupply of weapons, uh, but without having any American or NATO forces cross that uh, Ukraine border. Now, economically, the soaring cost of oil prices and in turn gas prices is really hard to ignore closer to home. But what are some of the big economic questions your event will tackle? The biggest event, I think, is probably what the effect of this is on the world economy, because obviously this spike in gas prices, which I think is driven in part by uncertainty as much as the actual supply uh, circumstances, and I can explain that, whether that's going to end up being a drag, not just on the American economy, but on the world economy. But the other issue, of course, is how to calibrate sanctions exactly so that they're most effective. And again, I think the Biden administration is exercising some caution, because if the sanctions on gas and oil are pushed through, one perverse effect is that prices will rise and therefore, the oil and gas that Putin can sell is actually of more value, um, not to mention just the pain which is inflicted on more dependent parties in, in Eastern Europe in particular. So I think the question of the larger economic effects on the world economy 
And then the question of whether sanctions should be extended to Russian oil and gas exports are two of the main questions we'll be discussing. Earlier, you mentioned the role of sanctions in combating Russia. You have written extensively about North Korea and about the role sanctions have played in relations with that country. Are there any lessons in that case that may be applicable to Russia today? I think the use of sanctions is not very well understood. We know that they don't always work. And in fact, they don't typically work in getting an adversary to do what you want. So I don't think that the sanctions are going to have the effect of giving Putin second thoughts or leading him in a different course with respect to the military campaign in Ukraine. But that's not the only purpose of sanctions. They also have a longer run deterrent effect. And more importantly, I think these sanctions were really aimed at degrading Russian capabilities over the long run, making it more difficult for them to do what they're doing now in the future. And, you know, at the start of this interview, you made reference to how this war may impact relations between China and Russia. What's your biggest question as it pertains to that? To me, this is actually the biggest geostrategic question, is exactly what the Russian-China relationship would look like. And we're going to be holding another webinar next week on this, but just a few bullets on this. First, I think China is actually in a quite difficult position because its foreign policy since its founding uh, was centered on the principle of non-interference in the affairs of others and its affairs in particular. And now uh, Xi Jinping has decided to throw his lot in with uh, a Russia that has invaded a sovereign country. So I think that this is not an easy circumstance for China altogether. But on the other hand, we saw at the Olympics that Putin and Xi issued a wide-ranging joint statement. The first topic in that joint statement was about their conception of democracy and how they didn't want to see democracy along Western lines exported, including to them. And so I do think there's going to be a meeting of minds and closer coordination between China and Russia going forward than we've seen in the past. How can people find tonight's forum? If you go to the web website of the School of Global Policy and Strategy, there'll be an event banner there that'll allow people to access. And we've been really surprised at the, at the wonderful turnout we're getting. There are about 500 people now signed up for the event. All right. I've been speaking with Stefan Haggard, professor from UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy and moderator of this evening's free online event on the crisis in Ukraine, which starts at 5 p.m. today. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. The window of opportunity for the world to secure a livable future and avoid an advancing climate change disaster is rapidly closing. Stark observations like this are not typical in United Nations climate change reports. So the language used in the recently published report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 
caught a lot of attention, including that of Margaret Leinen, director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. And she believes the ocean is often overlooked when evaluating the effects of climate change and its potential to offer solutions. Professor Leinen wrote an op-ed in The Hill to express what we know about climate change in the Earth's oceans and why we need to know more. Professor Leinen, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. What was it about the language used in the IPCC report released last month that struck you as more blunt and urgent than usual? The IPCC has used the term unequivocal before. They've used it in terms that it's unequivocal that humans have influenced climate. But I think that the idea that there is a window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all that's closing really caught not only my attention, but that of my co-author, the director of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, as well as a host of other scientists around the world. It was really a very stark statement for IPCC. And why do you think the threat of climate change is now being expressed in these terms? I think it's because the impacts are so clear. We see the impacts in terms of precipitation with very large-scale changes in drought and flood. We see the impact in sea level rise with many more events that are really damaging coastal areas and coastal infrastructure. Here in California, we've seen the very progressive and rapid increase in the number of wildfires and the area that they burn. We've seen heat waves that are actually killing people and heat waves in the ocean that are changing the ocean ecosystem very strongly. As you write in your op-ed, 70% of the earth is covered by the ocean. Do we know enough about how warming and climate change are affecting that vast area of the earth? Well, we know some things, but we don't know exactly how they will impact us. For example, we know that more than 90% of the heat produced by human activity since the beginning of the industrial age has been absorbed by the ocean. And we can measure the rate of increase in temperature of the ocean, and we do. But it's harder to see exactly how that heat is affecting ecosystems because we haven't been able to observe them in detail for long enough to see the change. There are a few areas of the ocean where we do do that. Scripps has a program together with NOAA called the California Cooperative Fisheries Investigation, CalCoffee, and it has been looking at the fisheries off Southern California for more than 65 years. And so we have really seen change there, but we haven't been able to do that everywhere. So for example, Northern California does not have the same length of record. And so without that, it's hard to be able to predict what's going to happen to these important fisheries and other ecosystems. You mentioned sea level rise, and now you've been talking about fisheries. We also know of some other impacts of climate change on the ocean and its inhabitants. Can you tell us about that? The heating of the ocean is affecting coral reefs. And coral reefs are important, not just because they're beautiful and we all enjoy them, uh, and they're great places for recreation, but they're also nurseries for many, many different fish species. 
They're also, the reefs actually protect the coastal areas behind them. And uh, reefs are, are rapidly being uh, undergoing coral bleaching. We've heard that. Uh, and bleaching is a direct result of the warming of the ocean. So that's an example. In fisheries, we know that, that many fisheries are moving. So the fish, uh, as the ocean warms, they're moving to colder waters. And that means that they may not be close by for local fishermen. Uh, so those are a couple of examples of the impacts uh, on other areas of the ocean. Professor, it's, it's hard to see what is actually going on in the ocean. Satellites can't see into its depths. What will it take to be able to see into the ocean and do the science needed to understand what's going on? Well, we really need a whole new generation of observation technologies. And most of these are, are focused on being able to access the ocean without big ships. So floats, drifters, moorings, and so forth. We have some of these, but we don't have enough to really look at the ocean in its full extent or its full depth. So most of our observing systems, even the automated ones like this, are, are excellent for the upper part of the ocean, but they don't give us clues about what's happening at depth. And we know that, that even very deep waters affect what's going on on the surface. So being able to get to depth and being able to have a whole new array of technologies that would, for example, allow us to look at the biology and not just the big organisms, but also the microscopic ones that are at the base of the food chain. And is that investment being made in that new generation of observational vehicles? There are some great investments that have been made. Uh, the National Science Foundation funded what was called the Ocean Observatories Initiative to develop new kinds of observation instruments. And it had a lot of focus on deep water. The a multi-agency program called Argo that was actually developed at Scripps has almost 4,000 autonomous floats in the ocean measuring temperature and salinity. But these 4,000 floats don't routinely measure things related to biology. New programs are developing that will do this, but they don't have that extent of observations. And then there's the need for actually looking at the air-sea exchange in the ocean. Uh, air-sea exchange is really important because that's where all of that CO2 is taken up by the ocean and heat is taken up. So we really need to know whether the ocean is changing in its heat uptake or its CO2 uptake. And that relies on excellent observations of air-sea exchange. And that brings us to the opportunities that might exist that the ocean holds for doing even more to reduce the consequences of climate change in the future. Are you optimistic about that? I am. I think that there's a growing recognition that what scientists call blue carbon uh, will play a role. And by that term, blue carbon, they mean um, the uptake of carbon by the ocean ecosystem. For example, mangroves and seagrass, uh, when they're healthy, take up CO2 just like other plants do. And they also trap uh, organic material uh, carbon 
in the sediment around the roots of the mangrove and the seaweed. And so extending the mangrove areas and seagrass areas naturally takes up more carbon and it sequesters carbon. So that's a great example of what we call blue carbon. There are other ideas out there that would actually um, take CO2, this dissolved CO2 out of the ocean and sequester it somewhere. And those are at a much earlier stage of research. And it's an example of something that we have to understand more completely to see if it would work. These are complicated endeavors, both observing the ocean and also trying to figure out solutions to climate change that the ocean might offer us. Do you worry that people who are in a position to act won't act and the needed investments won't be made to find solutions? It has been difficult to add greater funding for ocean research. Uh, you know, uh, countries always have lots of priorities. But I think that the recognition by the UN Framework for Climate Change, uh, that's the negotiating body that gets together every year and talks about what's happening with the ocean or what's happening in climate and the impacts of climate change. They have taken up the ocean and they have now said the ocean will be a part of their annual uh, negotiations. It will be a part of their studies like future IPCC reports. And that's a big change from just a couple of years ago when the oceans weren't part of the climate discussions at all. I've been speaking with Professor Margaret Leinen, Director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. Professor Leinen, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Tijuana has long been a refuge for people who can't or don't want to pay the sky-high costs to live in San Diego. But now, with San Diego becoming the most unaffordable place in the U.S., even more are making the move. And as KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis explains, this is having a big impact on life in Tijuana. I'm spending the afternoon with Gustavo Chacon, a Tijuana realtor with a flair for showmanship. So this is the main room, and in this you have a balcony. He's the type of realtor who walks you into a dark master bedroom. Then, with a flourish, 
opens the curtain to reveal a beautiful view of Tijuana's eastern mountains. And you have a balcony where you can actually put a table and some chairs and enjoy the afternoon. This type of a house is $950. We're in a two-bedroom house in TJ's Las Palmas neighborhood. It's got a small yard and a balcony, and it's just 15 minutes away from the border. In San Diego, that $950 a month might get you a studio. Tijuana has always been a place where Americans can live affordably while continuing to work in San Diego. But in 2022, America's finest city also became its most unaffordable, according to Ojo Labs. It's one of the reasons why the stream of people heading south has become a flood. Out of 10 people that call us, seven of them are from the United States. Jill Holstein is a professor at San Diego State University. She moved to Tijuana after the 2007 financial crisis. So, you know, we have that luxury, really, of living on the border and being able to sort of have it both ways. You know, pay low rent and have a lower cost of living in Tijuana and then, you know, have the powerful earning power of the United States. She lost her North Park condo in the subprime mortgage crisis, but that misfortune gave her an opportunity to make a move she'd wanted to make for a long time. When Holson moved to Tijuana in 2011, her children thought it was edgy. Her co-workers thought it was more quirky and unusual. But over the last few years, and especially during the pandemic, Holson says that friends and co-workers have been hitting her up for advice. You know, explain to me how you did this because I'm really thinking about it, but I don't understand what to do. I don't know, like, how much should I pay for rent and, you know, where should I go? Scott Asher is among the new arrivals. He's a freelancer, works as a digital artist, makes YouTube videos, and is into NFTs. He went 18 months without finding steady work during the pandemic. It was a solution that I needed. I was in the market for, right? I need a place to live, right? So it's definitely a solution for a place to live. Asher is paying $550 a month for a two-bedroom apartment in Ensenada, about an hour and a half away from the border. He couldn't find anything as nice for that price in Tijuana, let alone San Diego. And it's not just lower rent. Asher says he pays less for food, utilities, cell phone bill, dental visits, and even car insurance. I don't know what place I'd be able to afford in, in, in California. But every time someone like Asher makes the move south, there's an impact. The neighborhoods become less affordable for the people already living there. Chacon, the local realtor, says that what's been happening in San Diego for decades is now happening in Tijuana. The people who make less are having a hard time to buy properties where to rent them. Uh, and also adding the shortage of production of housing. That home with a balcony, the one going for $9.50 a month, it rented for $7.50 just a few years ago. Tijuana landlords know that they can make a lot more money by renting to Americans, and residents who live in upper-middle-class neighborhoods near the border are seeing their rents go up. But unlike Americans, people already living in Tijuana cannot simply cross the border to find more affordable housing. Instead, they're priced out and going to the outskirts of town, in neighborhoods with fewer jobs, less public services, and more crime. It is, it is something that's going to affect a lot of people, middle class and lower class, and working class. And uh, it is going to affect them in the long run because the prices are going to go higher. And same thing is going to happen that, that's happening in San Diego to Tijuana. Joining me is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Appreciate you having me on. Now, one of the reasons for San Diego's high real estate prices is our ongoing housing shortage. Does Tijuana have enough housing? They do uh, for now, uh, right? That, that's part of the reason why 
the prices in Tijuana are starting to go up is because construction isn't really keeping up all that much. A lot of the newer construction in Tijuana is is uh, the luxury condos that you see popping up near the border. I live in Imperial Beach and I can just see them. Like every year, it seems like there's a new tower <laughs> that you can see from, from San Diego. But that said, there's less construction going on. And just frankly, there's not enough space to keep up with the demand. So what's been happening in San Diego for, for decades now is starting to happen in Tijuana. So what is the process like for people who are interested in renting in Baja? Do you just call up a rental agent and go? Is there any red tape involved? Similar to what you would find here. I think the best way to go would be to go with somebody who knows the market, at least if you have a friend or family member who lives in Tijuana, that helps. You can get access to local deals. If you don't know anyone, it's in your best interest to go through a realtor. They have licensed realtors in Baja California now, and that's important because like here, there's a lot of housing scams. Americans who don't have too much experience in Mexico might think it's a little bit lawless. You just kind of pay under the table. You find what you can get. But there is process in place and it's best to go through someone who knows that process just really to protect yourself right make sure you're renting from the right place make sure the people you're renting from actually own the property and are allowed to rent it you should just do similar due diligence that you would do while you're looking for rent here now you talk about americans renting in baja what about buying property isn't it more complicated for foreigners to buy property in mexico Yes, it is more complicated. Uh, so I would encourage anyone thinking of doing that to to find a lawyer, a reliable lawyer they can trust. Again, go through a realtor. There are licensed realtors down there. People forget, right? Tijuana is another country. You you can drive there in fifteen minutes, but you are dealing with a with a different country with different judicial system and different laws, uh, especially around property laws. So I would just encourage people to keep that in mind when they're when they're thinking about this and talking about these issues, right? People tend to think like, oh, I can just drive down there and and do the same thing I'm doing here. No, I mean, it's a different country. Tijuana is more Americanized, right? You hear more people speak English, uh, more people accept dollars, and that kind of helps negate a little bit of the the culture shock that you would normally see when you go to another country. So it's a little bit easier to forget that you are in another country, but you are, and you should take that into consideration. Gustavo, you say that you're seeing housing, luxury housing developments go up in Tijuana. Is that because of the increased interest from Americans? I, I believe so. I mean, if you look at the prices and if you look at the marketing, it, it's tailored to an American consumer base. Uh, and uh, the location, too, a lot of these are popping up close to the border. And they kind of, in their um, in their brochures, they say, you know, 15 minutes to the border, 10 minutes to the border. It's tailor-made for people who want to live in Mexico and work in the U.S., obviously earn that uh, that power of the dollars and be able to live in, in pesos. Now, because Americans are driving up rents in Tijuana, is there any sort of backlash against Americans living in TJ? I don't know if I would call it backlash, um, but it's similar tension. I, I would definitely use the word tension, and the sources use the word tension. I, I would describe it almost as binational gentrification, right? Uh, similar tension to what you might see in in places like Barrio Logan, right, where they're predominantly or historically working class, tight knit communities, and 
people that are being displaced by people who aren't from that community and can pay a lot more money than the people that are used to. Now, it does help uh, the attitude and the way you go about living in another country, right? One of the sources I talked to, um, Jill Holson, she moved there back in 2011. She already knew Spanish, so that helped. But she went out of her way to really make friends with local Tijuanenses, to not limit herself to only hanging out with the, with the English only, with the expat crowd. She wanted to be a part of that community and, and contribute to that community instead of just going over there to take advantage of the cheap rent. And I think people there, like in any community, they notice that, right? When you show an interest in a community, when you make an effort, it, it, it makes you a little bit more welcome than as, uh, as opposed to if you just go there, you don't really interact with your neighbors, uh, you don't really vibe or follow the customs over there, then I think there might be more tension if you kind of treat it that way. And are there any rent control laws that could help Tijuana residents from seeing their rent skyrocket? Well, that's one of the things I asked everyone I talked to uh, in Tijuana, right? Because we're seeing, we're starting to see rents increase and that's displacing uh, working class, middle class folks, especially people who earn in pesos. And I would ask everyone what what protections are there? Are there any advocacy organizations? And the response I got was, no, Tijuana doesn't have this culture or history of tenant advocacy like we have here in San Diego with, with different organizations that do eviction preve- prevention and different type of aid like that. There are laws in the books, but the fact of the matter is that in, in Mexico, you can have a lot of laws in the books, but if there's no enforcement mechanism, uh, or, or willingness to enforce from the part of the government, then that doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Appreciate it. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Each month, we bring you five works of visual art that you can find in San Diego, whether in galleries or on the sides of buildings, and even in a remote citrus grove. Joining me to discuss her selections this month is KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So first, we have a piece by New York-based artist Tara Donovan at Quint One in Logan Heights. You say this is made out of thousands of toothpicks and nothing else. I mean, is there glue at least? There is not. It really is. Thousands of toothpicks and nothing else. And one of the things that Tara Donovan is known for is her art that uses small everyday objects in massive quantities. And it kind of calls into question the scale of them and also the identity of them. Like she will transform things into something really beautiful or confounding. And a lot of that comes from the repetition, these mass produced goods, like like a toothpick or a pin or a styrofoam cup, they become something, something else when they're all arranged next to each other. And so this work that just opened at Quint One is a giant, perfect cube of toothpicks. And I want to say it's about waist high 
and they really are held together by friction and gravity and no glue. It, it almost looks unreal. And from afar, it even looks like a very tidy haystack, just kind of based on the color of the toothpicks. And these toothpicks will naturally shed throughout the course of the installation and the shape may shift just a little bit. And because of this, you do have to make a free appointment to see it. You just email the gallery and they'll set you up. Or if you are at Bread and Salt visiting any of the other galleries, you'll be able to look through the windows. The doors have have these narrow windows in them and you'll be able to see it that way but they are keeping those doors closed to protect it it'll be on view through april 16th next we go to the downtown library where there is a multimedia work by tijuana artist charles globitz tell us about this one Right, this is part of the new Occupy Third Space 2 exhibition. It's a group show with work that explores language and the border, particularly based in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, This is on their ninth floor gallery in the Central Library. It has some really incredible works, but I love this one. I had actually stopped in front of it when the multimedia projection was It was in between loops, so it was kind of paused. And it just looked like it was this still, flat work. It's a series of canvases. There's about a dozen or more um, in different sizes and shapes, and they're all kind of Tetris together into a large rectangle. Most of them are painted a pale gray, so it's kind of monochrome, with simple black ink drawings on them. There's some barbed wire. There's a really pensive uh, kind of blank face. There's a bare tree. And then when the projection kicked in, it kind of startled me. There's probably a few minutes worth of animation, bright lights, and then the the smaller canvases flash through a bunch of changes. So the border has these tanks moving around it. That face cycles through different ages, even different identities, and the tree will cycle through seasons. The, the piece is called A la Brava, and Charles Glaubitz, the artist, said that that phrase translates into so many different meanings. It's like winging it, or having a beginning but no end, or the hard way, or aggressively. And so this image is inspired by that and also border crossings from his youth. And in Borrego Springs at the Candlewood Arts Festival, one of the works by Sharon Gurgis uh, got your attention. Describe this one. Yeah, this is sited at the Sealy Ranch Orchards in Borrego Springs among orange groves. It's by LA-based installation artist Sharon Gurgis. And when she was first invited to participate in this festival, it's called the Candlewood Arts Festival, she became fascinated with the Borrego Springs citrus groves, how there's such this paradox in the colors and the smells against the landscape of the desert and also wrapped up in all these issues about water, about the history of labor and agriculture in general in the desert. All right, next is another desert-inspired work, this one on view at Mesa College Art Gallery. Tell us about Anna Stump's Long Crescent Wrench. This one is a literal wrench with a very tiny painting made on the handle. Um, it's part of a dual exhibition between Anna Stump and Ben Alanoff. It's called Militarized Desert, Life and Death in the Mojave. 
And they are honing in on those juxtapositions as well. This time of the the fierce, wild desert landscape in the Mojave, and also the the huge military history and the presence of the military there. What Anna Stump has done is she uses a lot of found metals, like waste metals and materials from the desert, and painted on them. So there's these huge canvases made of corrugated metals, but I was particularly drawn to these miniatures. On this one, she painted this tiny, serene desert scene on a rusty iron wrench. You can see the mountains on the backdrop. They're vividly tinged with with like pinks and purples from the sun. Then there's this tiny white house. It's um, surrounded by desert plants. The whole thing is so small, and it's amazing how she fit it all on the handle. It's just this perfect study in the desert's contrast. So there's the image, there's the canvas itself, and the scale. And finally, a mural in downtown San Diego. Tell me about this one by Tao Hoon French. Right, this was part of last fall's huge um, mural project by Ladies Who Paint. And they took over a bunch of buildings and walls across the city, including four that are viewable from the same corner. This is all on the back of Hotel Z downtown on the corner of 7th and Island. And Tao Hoon French's is this this huge bouquet of marigolds. So there's bright reds and oranges and yellows, really big flowers, and they're set in this ornate glass vase with intricate details on every single petal. They have um, black squiggles twisting around, kind of zigzagging around each of the flowers. And then there's excess paint drips coming out of the bottom of the painting. And I also love how up close The crispness of the detail that you saw from afar, it kind of softens into this airy haze. And French also painted uh, like a big white frame, a backdrop to look almost like a canvas, but then had some of the petals kind of pop off the edges. And it's that makes it almost like an optical illusion. And yeah, there are three other works there from three other women muralists. There's Enchi, Sarah Tate, and Lindsay Sochar. So it's definitely worth a detour. You can find pictures of all these works and details on how to see them for yourself on our website, kpbs.org. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank you. Thank you for having me, Jade. A new podcast, Idolo, The Ballad of Chilino Sanchez, follows the remarkable story of a Mexican singer whose career was cut short at its peak when he was murdered in the early 1990s. Both Sanchez and the creators of the podcast have deep roots in Southern California. KQED's Blanca Torres tells us more about Sanchez and why his story still resonates three decades later. In the 1980s, a young Chalino Sanchez was just another Mexican immigrant hustling to survive in Southern California. On weekends, he could be found selling tapes of his music at swap meets or singing at backyard quinceañeras, clad in his signature Western wear and cowboy hat, tilted to one side. In a few years, 
he became a best-selling singer whose music flowed from California to Mexico, mesmerizing fans with narco corridos, songs that told stories about outlaws and drug traffickers. This is a type of ballad that reminds you of what your abuelitos listen to, or what your parents or your tias and tios listen to. Gatti de los Rios is an assistant professor at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Education who has researched how students of Mexican descent relate to corridos. It is a form of literacy. It's a form of reading and writing. It's through corridos that a lot of young people learn allegory, hyperboles, similes, metaphors. Sanchez was only 31 when he was found shot to death after a concert in his home state of Sinaloa. 30 years later, his songs have hundreds of millions of streams and continue to bump from home stereos at parties and on radio stations throughout California. I've been trying to tell this story professionally in mainstream media for like 10 years. Eric Galindo is co-host of Idolo. He wanted to tell Sanchez's story in a way that would appeal to other Mexican-Americans like himself, who felt seen in his music. I think it was the idea that you're in this country and you don't feel like, like you belong. And here's a guy who definitely does not sound like he belongs on stage. And he's doing it anyway, and he's doing it with passion and with gusto. That certainly resonates with me, you know. While fans still celebrate Sanchez, critics say he normalized machismo and narco culture. But Jorge Herrera, an expert on Mexican music who teaches at Cal State Fullerton, said Sanchez is part of a long line of corrido singers attempting to capture real-life stories. They're singing about what's going on in Mexico, and you cannot blame that on the corrido. It's like the narco war, the, the drugs, all that came first, and the, the music is just a reflection of what's happening. Herrera said that the abrupt end to Sanchez's career plays a role in how he and his music are remembered. The reason he has this big appeal is one of the big reasons why, like, Tupac will never die, while Biggie will also never die, because they sort of became like like martyrs in their music. You know, they died at the peak of their career singing their music because of their music. The Idolo production team commissioned a new corrido about Sanchez. The verses include the refrain, not even the bullets could kill him. His legacy lives on here, just like on the other side. For the California Report, I'm Blanca Torres.